Thank you, Laura. That was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Let me show you something I think may be interesting. Back up one slide to my slide on uh, viewing. I forgot to do that during the, uh, during the announcements. I see the guys in the back laughing. I'm going backwards. I thought, thought that might be interesting to you. Last week on this Sunday morning service, we had uh, uh, 966 views for the whole week. That's as of last night. And if you figure there's 2.4 people in every household, that's, that's in Guilford County and in Rockingham County, that's about 2,300 people. So praise the Lord for that. And then on the uh, Sunday night, the, uh, the Ephesus study with Dr. Miller, uh, 521 views, about 1,200 people. And then the Wednesday night uh, as well, uh, 291 views, 698 people. And that, of course, was Wednesday, so it's only been four days for that. By the way, on the Sunday morning, uh, the last two weeks, we've had over 400 the first week, over 500 the second week that were watching the live stream. And so we had over 1,000 people watching the live stream with us. So thank you. Thank you for watching, and thank you for inviting other people to watch. Uh, so keep doing that. People are watching, so keep inviting and, you know, share with other people online. All right, now, let's look in our Bibles to... John chapter 5. We're going through the book of John verse by verse. And we are um, come to chapter 5 now. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter. And uh, I think it will be a blessing to all of us. Remind you that John is writing about 60 years after the cross and the resurrection. He's in his 90s. And uh, he's looking back and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Pins this book, the book of John. And uh, the, the theme of the book is the deity of Christ. The Word became flesh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And um, we'll see a claim to deity in this passage as well. With that said, let's look now at verse 1 of chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was at Jerusalem by the sheep market or the sheep gate a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda having five porches. This is the setting for the third miracle that John records for us. Pray with me. Father, thank you for our time together. Make it profitable for each of us, I pray. Each of us that are viewing and, and we pray that you would comfort people in this time of difficulty and uh, may uh, we get our eyes off of, the, uh, off of the tragedies and get our eyes back on you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. People are saying, is this a part of the end of days, what's going on? They're saying, uh, is this a part of the apocalypse? Is this bringing in the apocalypse? Is this bringing the second coming in? I even heard one preacher say, there's never been anything like this ever before. Well, there's a, there's a word, pestilence, that's used in the New Testament. It's used only twice, and both times it's recording uh, a sermon that Jesus gave on signs of the times. Look at your screen and look at uh, Matthew chapter 24. The question was to Jesus... When is your coming and when is the, 
what's the signs of your coming? And he begins to give them signs. And in verse 7 he says, For nation shall rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilence, and earthquakes in diver places or in various places. Now you have that word pestilence. It means sickness. Uh, You could put the word pandemic in there. Uh, And so he says that is a sign uh, as they ask him of his second coming. Now, there's two problems with this being a sign of the Lord coming back. One is, all the biblical signs for the second coming is not for the rapture of the church. And that's the next thing that's going to take place. All the signs are for the second coming of Christ. And so we know there's going to be pestilence and earthquakes during the tribulation period. When Christ comes back to take his church to heaven, the redeemed of this age are going to heaven. We're going to be caught up in the twinkling of an eye. That's the rapture of the church. And then the tribulation period will begin three and a half years of of false peace on earth. And then three and a half years of tribulation. Jesus said that tribulation there's nothing like it that's ever happened on earth and will never happen again. It's so severe. We know there's going to be terrible pestilence there because the book of Revelation explains that in, in quite a bit of detail. And so if this has anything to do with the second coming it is only laying a groundwork it is only setting the stage it's not the pestilence that Jesus spoke of here prior to his coming back again that will take place in the tribulation there's a second problem with that and and that is as this preacher said this uh, nothing like this has ever happened before that's not exactly true pandemics have happened before how we responded to them has been different this time so let, let me show you the some uh, pandemics Look at your screen, and here is, uh, in, just in the last hundred years, that's not going back to the Black Death. The Black Death had something like 200 million deaths. And uh, uh, then the Russian flu was just before the 1900s and uh, killed millions. But this is just in the last 100 years. So we had uh, the Spanish flu in 1918. And there you have the type of it, H1N1. And it killed 40 to 50 million people. That was just 100 years ago. World War I was just over. 17 million people died in the war. Two times that. Nearly three times that died in this pandemic. The swine flu. So it has happened before. By the way, they shut down churches too. And uh, in one place, I was reading an article, they shut down churches for a month uh, in, in one particular city. And then uh, the Asian flu, 1957, 1.1 million deaths. Hong Kong flu, 1968, uh, 1 million. The swine flu, this was only 10 years ago. Uh, 2009 and 2010 killed 200,000 people worldwide. And then the SARS, uh, when the coronavirus first came out, you know, they talked a lot about SARS and MERS because they are coronaviruses. If you notice under the type there, this is a coronavirus. It never made it to the U.S., killed 770 people. The Ebola, 11,000, and that was just a few years ago. And then the MERS uh, was in just two years ago, and 850 again. It didn't make it to the U.S., 
neither did the Ebola. And then we have the uh, COVID-19, what we're going through right now. And so far, it's killed 30,619 people worldwide. Now, so this isn't something that's never happened before. It has happened before. Now, we're responding differently this time. And I think rightfully so. I think the social distancing is a wonderful thing. If it saves one life, it's worth it. And it, it's very possible it will save many, many, many lives. And uh, we should participate in that. I know there are some preachers that don't want to participate. But like I shared with you from the very beginning, our first uh, online-only service uh, in Romans chapter 13, it says we're to obey uh, the governmental officials. Now, if they ask us to do something contrary to Scripture, then we're to obey God rather than man. Uh, but as long as uh, it doesn't contradict God's Word, we should obey our governmental officials. I think what they're doing is right and good, and I applaud them. We're trying to keep, or they are, they're trying to keep that 30,000 from turning into, if you look at the very top, 40 to 50 million. Or if you just go up 10 years... Uh, to 200,000. So we're trying to keep that from happening. So the way we responded is different, but uh, the pandemic itself is not. That's been going on, and I just went back 100 years. Now, that third column that says the type, watch it. I'm going to change it now to, uh, to the deaths in the U.S., compare the U.S. to the world. So 600 and 75,000 with the Spanish flu, and you see those numbers coming down. Uh, the SARS and Ebola and MERS was, didn't make it to the U.S., no, no figures available there. But in the U.S., as of this morning, uh, or as of last night, that's already gone up about 150, according to this morning. Uh, but that's as of last night, 2026 in the U.S. So this is serious. This is a tragedy. I want you to think about tragedy for a minute. It comes to rich and famous and poor and unknown and so does the coronavirus. Young and old and senators are sick with it. Hollywood movie stars are sick. I saw just this morning one infant died. One teen in California, 21 year old. In Brooklyn, a principal, 36 years old, died. In New York City, 100 people died in the last 24 hours. Last Sunday, I said to you that in New York, somebody is dying every hour. That just sounds so tragic. But as of today, a week later, there's four to five people in New York dying every hour. It has increased that much. And experts are saying that New York maybe weeks from their peak. So according to health experts, it's going to get worse. In the U.S., by the way, there's 40% of those that are hospitalized are between the ages of 20 and 54. A lot's been said about senior citizens and so forth, and rightfully so. But uh, this, uh, this sickness is touching people of all ages, 40%. Now, that's not just confirmed cases. That's in the hospital. So young people are in the hospital, and some of them on ventilators. And uh, this is serious. 
Uh, and then Italy has 10,000 dead, so that's about a third of that 30,000 you see right there is in Italy. And, uh, and we are told that we are about three weeks behind Italy in the outbreak. So again, it appears, unless God intervenes in a miraculous way, that things are going to get uh, worse. The U.S. now has the most confirmed cases of any place in the world, possibly because of more testing, but uh, that's the statistic. Now, look away from the coronavirus for a moment and think about other tragedies. Heart disease every year just in the U.S. kills 647,000 people. Wow. And then... Uh, cancer, 608,000 people in the U.S. Automobile accidents, 37,000 in the U.S. The book of Job in the Bible tells us man is born of trouble. Not, not just a male person, but mankind. Man is born of trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. You see a fire and the sparks go up. As sure as those sparks are going to go up, man's born of trouble. Tragedy comes. Um, I like what Franklin Graham said. Heard it this morning. Franklin Graham was being interviewed, and and uh, they've got the Samaritan purses on the front line in Italy and here. And the broadcaster said something like, "Samaritan's purse is a real rock." And and uh, Franklin Graham said, "Oh no, we're not the rock. Jesus is the rock. People need to look to Him." And uh, so we're praying that people in this difficult time will look to him. In our passage today, we have a man who had a tragedy. A real tragedy. A real sadness. A real heartbreaking situation. And then comes Jesus. So let's look back at our text. And uh, notice in verse 1 again. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Usually John, uh, John tells us what feast it is. This time he does not. We don't know what feast. They had many feasts. But the purpose of this is to tell us now he's back in Jerusalem, which is down there. I'm, I'm not showing you a map today, so it's down there in that southern region, Judea. Instead, of, he was, the last time we saw him, he was up in Galilee in the northern region. And so here we have some geographical information again from John to help us track the, the travels of the Lord Jesus. So now he's in Jerusalem. And uh, now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market or the sheep gate a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda having five porches. Now, I want you to look at the screen for a moment and I've got some visuals for you here. Uh, Here's a picture of Jerusalem. Uh, it's a drawing uh, of, of the time of Christ. And uh, this is what Jesus would have seen with his disciples when they come upon the city. Sometimes people would say as they approach the city, the city of God or the holy city of God. And uh, here is a diagram from the top of, the, uh, of Jerusalem uh, during the time of Christ. You see the, the rectangle building there. That's the... Uh, uh, that's the temple mount where the temple was and now up in the top right hand corner I'm going to put an oval up there and that's where our scene takes place today 
That's where the sheep gate is, and that's where Bethesda is. Those pools of Bethesda, they've been uncovered by archaeologists, and you can visit them today. Karen and I visited them back when we were in the Holy Land. And this is, a, this is what those uh, pools look like in Jesus' day. They're bigger than what you would imagine just reading the text. You see those bigger uh, openings there, those are doors. Uh, so you can see that there was, uh, these were big pools and uh, they were, uh, had uh, porches all the way around so people could get out of the sun and so forth. Uh, this picture, by the way, is taken uh, from the uh, uh, Jerusalem Museum, Museum in Jerusalem where they have, uh, they have all of this display. And so this is the pool of Bethesda. Now, look back at your scripture again. We come to verse 3. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. Now, this is a, this is a picture. This is a sad picture. This is tragedy, as I spoke of a moment ago. But it's a spiritual picture of, of lost humanity trying to help each other, but without, without God's grace and without a relationship with Him. Look back at it again. The word impotent there comes from a Greek word that means uh, without strength or weak. It came to mean sickness. Uh, so these folks were sick. And then you have blind, and then you have halt. The word halt in the King James means crippled or lame. And, and then withered means uh, paralyzed, so that the body, the muscles of the body uh, deteriorate and, uh, from someone who cannot use those. So there were people there who were paralyzed. It, it almost looks like a makeshift hospital for people. And probably there was people who brought some food in and fed uh, these, uh, these sad people. And maybe some of them did it out of, a, uh, out of just wanting to do what's right and good. Some of it probably did it because they wanted to earn some kind of merit with God. And they were there waiting for the troubling of the water, verse 3 says. And then verse 4 says, For an angel went down at a certain session into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. Now, if you've got a newer translation, verse 4 is missing altogether. So if you're looking down at it and scratching your head and trying to figure out where did verse 4 go, uh, this is one of those variances that uh, we talk, have to talk about occasionally, uh, where uh, there is a debate on whether that should be added or not, or whether it should be in the text. The argument goes like this. The majority text have it in there. That means most of the manuscripts, the ancient manuscripts, have this verse in there. But uh, some of the ones that were discovered later, who some scholars believe are older, they do not have it. So the people, some people lean towards the older, some people lean towards the majority text. Now the King James was taken from the majority text. And so anytime there's a there is a variance like this, I go with the King James. And so I think it should be there. And uh, that's verse 4. One thing, and, and Dr. Warren Wiersbe makes a great point when he says verse 7 doesn't make any sense without verse 
4. Look at verse 7. Uh, and the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. So, uh, verse 4 helps explain verse 7. So, sometimes we don't know how often the water was troubled by an angel and somebody would be healed. It was a, it was a touch of God's mercy uh, among those who were suffering so severely. And then verse, uh, verse 5 says, And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. So this man had been sick thirty-eight years. Can you imagine that? <coughs> Excuse me. Because of the context, most scholars feel like this man was paralyzed because he uses the frame, there's no one to put me into the water. Like what he really needed was somebody to pick him up and carry him and put him into the water. So he's been paralyzed, if that's the case, 38 years in laying around this pool, hoping that one day he might get into that water and be healed. Isn't that a tragic story? He had nobody to put him in, so he was apparently had no family around, no friends outside of those friends that of the sick people, and they were sick themselves and trying to get into the water before him. It's a tragic. So he was homeless, he was helpless, and he was hopeless. This man, 38 years. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lie or laying there and knew. Jesus saw him and knew. He knew what? He knew all about him. Remember, this has been a theme John keeps pointing out. In chapter 2, he said there were some people who believed, but they were just believing in, in Jesus as a miracle worker, not the Savior and not the Son of God. And so it says Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. And then, of course, he knew Nicodemus needed the new birth. And then he knew that the woman at the well had been married five times and was living to some, with someone she was not married to. He knew. And he knows. When he looks at this man, he knows all about him. Knew how he grew up. Knew he's been sick 38 years. And he knew what he was thinking at that moment. He knows. Whatever you're going through, He knows. Your tears or your fears during this outbreak, He knows. And He can meet the needs of our hearts, the needs of our soul. And so, He knew. Uh, and then it, it says that He had been now a long time in that case. And He said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? Wilt there means, do you want to be? Would you like to be made whole? It seems like a, uh, it, it seems like a needless question when we first read it. Surely he wanted to be whole, but not all sick people want to be made well. Not all sinners want to be made new in Christ. This man's healing is a spiritual picture it's a physical healing of, a, of the spiritual experience <clears throat> of being saved and forgiven and cleansed and uh, not everybody that's lost wants to be saved 
Jesus said in John 3, people don't come to the light because, why? They love the darkness. They love their sin. They want to live like they're living. They don't want anybody to tell them how to live. So they don't want to come to the darkness. I think that's a pertinent question for believers too. Some believers might say, I want to really be dedicated. I want to really grow. I want to really mature in the faith and be Christ-like. Jesus might ask us, do you really? Do you really want to go forward and be committed like that? It's a pretty deep and pertinent question. Look at it again in verse 7. The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Somebody gets in front of him. He needs to be put into the pool by somebody. So apparently he has no family, no friends outside of this circle of sick friends that he lays in this porch under these porticos, under this, uh, those roofed porches uh, around the pools of Bethesda. It's interesting that he didn't say right away, yes, yes, I want to be healed. But he began to make excuses why he hadn't been healed so far. I'm this and that. And a lot of people have criticized this man. And it is true that nowhere in the scripture do we find him giving thanks to the Lord Jesus. Most of the people who were healed with loud voices cried out, glory to God. Or they followed Jesus from that moment on and so forth. There was great rejoicing. We don't see that with this man. But I think there's something encouraging about that. And that is, even when we're not as thankful as we should be, it doesn't change the fact that the Lord Jesus loves us with an everlasting love. And His love is never diminished, even when our love is so lacking. Here was a man He picked out. Here was a man He loved. In John 15, Jesus is going to say, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Here's a man... That Jesus loved as much as the Father loved Jesus. Remarkable, isn't it? A man that wasn't even going to be grateful. Did Jesus know he wasn't going to be grateful? Of course. And so his answer was that he couldn't get in the water. Verse 8, Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. He said, Rise, get up. Well, this man hadn't stood in 38 years. Jesus said, get up. Get up. Roll up your bed. Now, the bed was just a mat to lay on. It wouldn't have been big or heavy. It would have rolled up probably like a scroll or something like that. And you could carry it fairly easy. And uh, the next verse says, immediately the man was made whole. Immediately. In that very second, that man was made whole. That's a picture again of salvation. The, the moment we call on Christ and trust Him as Lord and Savior, we are made whole spiritually, forgiven with a home in heaven. And Christ comes into our lives, into our hearts forever. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. This is a beautiful physical healing as well. This man was healed immediately. He was made whole. By the way, when Jesus said, Rise and... Take up your bed and walk. The power, the power of the healing was in his word. He spoke this healing. Just like he spoke the worlds into existence. Just like one day he's going to speak. And, the, and in, later in this chapter we're told, 
he's going to speak and the graves, people in the graves, in their bodies are going to come forth out of the graves at the voice of the Son of God. Just like when he called Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead four days by Jesus' very words, his very voice, he calls Lazarus from the dead. The power, the healing was in his very word. Get up. Get up. Maybe he would say to some of us believers, get up and get busy. Learn the word. Spend time in prayer. Do what you know is right. Some people are always asking about what's the will of God. You'll never know the will of God for your life until you're willing to do what you already know is the will of God. If you're doing everything you know to be the will of God, then you'll get some light about what the will of God is for the rest of your life. And so, his power was in his word. Verse 9. Immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Or this day of the healing was the Sabbath. So he gets up and walks. Now we know from later verses that Jesus slipped away into the crowd. So he didn't have time to converse with Jesus or anything like that. The miracle takes place. Jesus slips away. The man gets up, begins to carry his bed. Verse 10 says, The Jews therefore saith unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Isn't that interesting? They said, It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Of course, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments say, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But the Jews had, had put all kinds of conditions on what that meant to keep the Sabbath holy. There was a whole list of things you couldn't do and a list of things you could do on the Sabbath. And, uh, and one of them is you can't carry anything, not even a little light rolled up mat. Just to show you how f fanatical the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, were regarding the Sabbath. Here's a couple of interesting things they taught. And again, this came from the oral law. But the reason Jesus condemned the Pharisees so harshly was because they had taken what he called the traditions of man and made them equal to the Word of God. So their interpretation of the Sabbath became to them like God's Word itself. And Jesus condemned them for that. Here's some, here's some of the things they said you can't do on the Sabbath. You cannot look into a mirror because, here's the thinking. <clears throat> if you look into the mirror, you might see a gray hair. And you might be tempted to pull out that gray hair. And therefore you would be, quote, working on the Sabbath. Can you imagine that? I'd be bald-headed when I... And then it says, uh, and you couldn't wear your false teeth on the Sabbath because if they fell out, you would be tempted to pick them up and therefore you would be working on the Sabbath. You couldn't carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath. Matter of fact, if you... You could wear a handkerchief but you couldn't carry it. If you were upstairs in a, in a room and you, had the, and you had the handkerchief in your hand, 
and you were going to go downstairs, you couldn't carry that down the steps. You'd have to put the handkerchief around your neck, then walk down the steps, then you could take the handkerchief back off and use it downstairs. All of that coming from God saying, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then, here's a, here's a few more interesting ones. Uh, a man, if his house caught on fire and he had a wooden leg, he could not carry the wooden leg out of the burning house. Wow. Travel was, was forbidden on the Sabbath and uh, you could only go a thousand yards. That was the limit. Here's an interesting one. You could spit on the Sabbath. <laughs> I would prefer people not spit at all, but you could spit on the Sabbath. But if you did spit, and you spit on the ground, you couldn't take your sandal and throw dirt on it. Because, and now, <clears throat> listen to this, because you would be cultivating the soil and performing work. Therefore, among the Jews of Jesus' day, and among the Pharisees in particular, you could tell if somebody was spiritual or not by the way they spit. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Pretty amazing how legalistic they had become. Jesus would later say, Man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. Well, the uh, religious people then were seen as list makers and list keepers. And the Pharisees were the very best of those list makers and list keepers. Somebody has said the Pharisees, John 3.16 would be this. For God so loved the world that he gave them list that whosoever might keep that list might make it to heaven and have everlasting life. I'm glad Jesus didn't see it that way, aren't you? And so the, the religious crowd, the Pharisees, they didn't get happy. The fact is, they told him, it was against the law to carry his bed. Verse 11 says, he answered them. He said, uh, he that made me whole or healed me, the same said unto me, take up thy bed. And when they heard that, uh, they asked him, what man is that which said unto you, take up thy bed and walk? <clears throat> now think about that response. Here's, most everybody knew this man. He'd been laying at, at this pool of Bethesda for 38 years. But even if they didn't know him, the religious leaders could have said, you've been healed? What do you mean you've been healed? And he would have said, 38 years, I was paralyzed. And now I've been healed. You would have think they might say, hey, hey, Joe, Joseph, come on over here. Hey, Dan, Daniel, come on over here. you got to hear this guy's story. And everybody would come and he'd tell the story and they'd raise their hands and praise the Lord and be so happy. <clears throat> None of that. Not even a thought of it. Just tell us the name of that man who told you to carry your mat on the Sabbath because he's breaking 
the law. Look what he says. Uh, and he that was healed wist not. The word wist means he knew not. He knew not who it was. For Jesus had conveyed himself or he, he had slipped away. That word means slipped away or dodged. Uh, he had slipped away and, uh, and a multitude being in that place. And so he had slipped away. This man didn't even know who Jesus was. Now, Jesus had preached in Jerusalem, of course, and he, he uh, scourged the temple and drove people out of the temple. But this was a man who was consumed with his tragedy. And his whole world revolved around that pool of Bethesda. And he didn't even know who Jesus was. All he knew was that man told him to rise and carry his bed. And he did so. There was power in his word to heal. And so... Uh, he didn't know who he was. I find that interesting. Afterward, verse 14. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. Now, that's interesting. It seems to imply that this man's sickness had come upon him because of sin in his life. The life he was living now, we know that's not always true. The Jews in Jesus' day carried the idea that, that if you were good, you'd be healthy. And if you were sick, that meant uh, you had been sinful. That's certainly not the case. Look over in chapter 9. And uh, 9, verse 1 and, and 2. Listen to it. It says, and, and Jesus passed by and saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be man manifest in him. Jesus said, Nobody sinned. Now, that didn't mean he had never sinned. It meant he didn't sin that brought on this sickness, either himself or his parents. So it's certainly not always the case, but in this case, it seems to indicate this man uh, had brought this on himself somehow by sinful living. And then Jesus said, something worse might come upon thee. Wow. What would be worse than, than being... An invalid for 38 years without a home, without family, without friends, and laying beside this pool with other sick people. What could be worse? I tell you what could be worse. Eternity in hell without Christ. This man needs to search his heart. He wasn't ready to hear anything more profound than that, like... The woman at the well, she was ready. Nicodemus was ready. And so he warns this man of something that could be worse. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. I've got a list of six other Sabbath day healings that I was going to show you, but our time's run out. I'll, let's just show them. Y'all have got your pajamas on anyway. What difference does it make? Uh, go to that slide on the Sabbath day. Or I've got it right here. If you'll go back to my screen. Can we go back? There, there we go. Right there. 
this, the invalid here in chapter 5, and then uh, healing of a uh, demoniac man, man possessed with the devil, the uh, grain picking. This is not a miracle, but this is uh, the Jews... Uh, uh, condemned Jesus for this and this is when Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath and then uh, the healing of a, sh of a shriveled hand and a blind man who was born blind in chapter the whole chapter of nine, uh, John healing of a woman crippled for 18 years wow and then healing of a man with dropsy all of those took place on the Sabbath <coughs> this was the first healing on the Sabbath and the Jews are going to hate him for it. Well, Jesus could have healed the day before, Friday. Or he could have healed on Sunday. In all of these instances, Jesus was showing the hypocrisy of the religious people of his day. He was not breaking the law. He was breaking the traditions of man. He was breaking the, the oral law that was written by man and he broke those over and over again as we see all of these healings could have taken place at a different time but he chose to heal on the Sabbath now look at verse 17 but oh finish verse 16 and therefore did the Jews persecute him and sought to slay him or kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath but Jesus answered them my father worketh hitherto and I work Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because not only had he broken the Sabbath, but said un, un also that God was his Father, making him equal with God. Now, the Jews rarely called God Father. But if they did, they would say, Our Father, the Father of the Jewish nation they would never say my father, personal father. They would never say that. And when Jesus said that, they knew immediately what Jesus claimed. He was claiming equality with the Father. And they knew it. Some liberal theologians, you know, like to say Jesus never claimed deity. Well, here's a place where he clearly did. And the people listening to him knew exactly that he was claiming deity. And because of it, they wanted to kill him all the more. Here's the beginning of the great persecution by the religious leaders of the day that will climax in the cross of our Lord Jesus. Hatred spewed out. Now, we'll come back next week and pick it up there. I want to show you a quick video. It's four minutes long and, uh, of this incident. And again, uh, we, we want you to remember these, these things really happen. Real people, real places. It might have looked something like this. Let's watch this. After this, Jesus went to Jerusalem for a religious festival. Near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool with five porches. In Hebrew, it is called Besatha. A large crowd of sick people were lying on the porches. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. The man was there who had been sick for 38 years. Jesus saw him lying there 
and he knew that the man had been sick for such a long time. Do you want to get well? Sir, I don't have anyone here to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm trying to get in, somebody else gets there first. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. The day this happened was a Sabbath, so the Jewish authorities told the man who had been healed, this is a Sabbath, and it is against our law for you to carry your mat. The man who made me well told me to pick up my mat and walk. Who is the man who told you to do this? But the man who had been healed did not know who Jesus was, for there was a crowd in that place, and Jesus had slipped away. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. You're well now. So stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Then the man left and told the Jewish authorities that it was Jesus who had healed him. So they began to persecute Jesus because he had done this healing on a Sabbath. It may have happened something like that. The Pharisees would have said, for God so loved the world that he gave us list. That whosoever might keep that list might have eternal life. Jesus said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son on the cross to die in our place, that whosoever believeth in him shall have, not maybe, not perhaps, but shall have eternal life. Come to Jesus. What do you need? Are you afraid? Pressures, problems, tragedies? Come to Jesus. He can grant peace and wisdom and guidance. And if you've never trusted him as Savior, he'll give forgiveness of sin and a home in heaven.
bow with me, please. And there at home, bow with me. And, and I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. And if you've never received Christ as your Savior, I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. And if you really mean it, pray this prayer with me. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I have sinned. I've done wrong. And I need forgiveness. And I believe you died on the cross for me. And I believe you rose again from the dead. And right now, I call on you to be my Lord and Savior. I open my heart, my life. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. And forgive my sin. Thank you for coming into my heart. Like you promised you would do. Help me to live for you. And find your joy and peace and strength in all of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much. If you prayed that prayer with me or last week, if you'll send us a, a letter, we would love to contact you. Or you can call the church. Uh, the phone number's on all of our, our website, of course, and our Facebook. And then, uh, or you could, you could click on the uh, m- uh, message comment there, and you could tell me that you trusted Christ as your Savior. We'd be glad to help you and encourage you along the way. Everybody have a wonderful day. Don't forget Dr. Miller at 6 o'clock tonight. God bless you.